I would say that if someone runs 80 kilometers a week and gets Achilles pain, and then the next week they run 60 kilometers a week and don't have Achilles tendon pain, I wouldn't necessarily say that that person is better. I would just say that they're exercising at a sub pain threshold. So clinically, you might deload them and go, oh, this is improving really nicely, but you're not actually testing them at the loads that aggravated them in the first place. And that's what's really tricky to do within a lot of the research. So I think what we've got to move to is not just asking, you know, is your pain improving, but whereabouts is your pain score, but also what are you doing physically? Because if you haven't tested it with what you did that first aggravated it, sometimes we can be fooling ourselves into thinking we're doing a great treatment, but we're not. Hello and welcome to the Adaptive Zone podcast, talking all things running and triathlon, from injury through rehabilitation and into performance. My name is Matthew Boyd. I'm a physiotherapist living in Red Deer, Alberta, originally from the UK, and I'll be your host. Hi guys, today on the show we have Miles Murphy and we're going to be talking about Achilles tendon pain and Achilles tendon pain is one of the most common running injuries and if you've ever been afflicted by it, you know that it is an absolute nightmare to get rid of. So uh, we got Miles on the show, he studies, well he's currently studying for his PhD looking at the latest evidence in Achilles tendon rehabilitation. So if you are having trouble with Achilles tendon pain or if you are an older runner, particularly guys, middle-aged guys who run a lot, uh, are prone to Achilles tendon problems. So you may find this helpful in terms of preventing Achilles tendon issues, but certainly if you've already got Achilles tendon pain, you've been told you have tendonitis or tendinosis or tendinopathy, you're going to find today's episode super helpful. So Miles is a PhD candidate. He's also a sports physiotherapist and he's looking at rehabilitation strategies for Achilles tendinopathy. And today we talk a little bit about the evidence behind the current rehab strategies in the beginning of the episode. And then towards the end, it gets really sort of practical. And Miles gives us some specific tips and tricks on how to actually address Achilles tendon issues and and what to do and what exercises to do and why. It's really, really helpful in terms of if you do have Achilles tendon problems, listen right through to the bit where he starts to talk about, you know, the the specific rehab strategies and what you should be doing, because that's where you'll find most of your helpful information. And that's more towards the end. So without further ado, uh, we'll bring on Miles Murphy. What kind of things are you researching and what, what got you interested in that in the first place? Yeah, so a lot of my research to date in relation to the Achilles has been about challenging some of the long-held assumptions that we have in the management of people with Achilles tendon pain. So wanting to look at some really basic information about what mechanisms might be responsible for improvements in pain and function with people when they're doing rehab for Achilles tendon pain and having a look at what we think we know and then what we need to get to in order to actually improve outcomes for our patients. Mm. So to start with, what do we think we know? (laughs) Well, the thing that's quite commonly referred to in the literature is that exercise is the gold standard with a high level of evidence supporting its use for people with Achilles tendon pain. So I'd say that's probably our number one assumption. And then the second assumption I think that we have is that 
it's a sort of a a load or dose response so we tend to think that you know the more you do or the better you are with your rehab programming the better your outcomes are um but from what i've done that doesn't seem to be the case mm. yeah and i think um that's certainly my like as a clinician um that has been my perception right it's like someone has achilles tendon pain when they run we need to do loading exercises so like calf raises getting progressively heavier and harder and then working on hopping and then in you know six to 12 weeks it'll all be fine and dandy and they'll be back to running so is that is that not the case is that um is that that we're, we're oversimplifying it a little bit yeah based on the research that's definitely not the case right. these things take <laughs> a lot longer um but the other thing to note in the research is they don't tend to study fresh Achilles episodes. And then as a clinician, you might be more inclined to see someone that has one or two weeks of Achilles pain that's starting to mm. interfere with their running capacity. Whereas a lot of the studies are done on people that have had it for over three months, varying from you know three months to three years mm. of tendon pain before they present for a study. So they're obviously, you would think, going to take a little bit longer given that they've had the presentation a little bit longer than your, your fresh Achilles patients. But definitely from the work we've done, it doesn't appear that it's a straightforward recovery. And there's been some previous work done that shows that a lot of people don't recover with the traditional exercise programs that we're prescribing. Right, and uh, just for the listeners, what would be a traditional exercise program? What have you found is, is usually commonplace for people with Achilles tendon problems when they go and see a physio? What's typical for them to get? So the most commonly researched exercise program for the Achilles is the eccentric program or heavy eccentric calf training. And what that consists of is three sets of 15 eccentric heel lowers off a step with a straight knee, followed by three sets of 15 with a bent knee. And then you do that twice a day. So you're looking at 180 eccentric heel drops a day, seven days a week over 12 weeks. And that's the most researched protocol out there that was initially eccentrics were reported in the early 90s. But then the first proper study looking at eccentrics was by Alfredson in 98, which mm -hmm. showed that when you compare that to a, a surgical cohort, they tended to do much better mm -hmm. if that had the, the eccentric loading. And um, could you just, for the listeners, explain, I think most people will know what eccentric means, but uh, for those who don't, what, what are you referring to then when you say an eccentric loading program? Yeah, so eccentric muscle activation is referring to when the muscle is contracting, but it's being lengthened at the same time. So if you think of a, a simple exercise like a leg extension, when you're sitting down on a leg extension machine, when you're straightening the leg, the muscle's activating and the muscle is getting shorter. Whereas when you lower the leg, the muscle is getting longer, even though it's still contracting. Mm. And the same for a heel raise. When you go up onto the toes, the upwards phase, the muscle is contracting and getting shorter. Whereas when you go downwards, the muscle is lengthening while it's still contracting. And it's that lengthening that we call the eccentric component of the exercise. Mm. So these eccentric um, calf raises, which sounds a little bit backwards, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like um, yeah. these have been very popular and I can certainly vouch for this. These have been very popular for the last 20 years. And I think they are 
like the most commonly prescribed and certainly in the in the physio world if if a runner comes in with achilles tendon problems nine out of ten physios or eight out of ten physios are going to give them this protocol i mean does it work does it work most of the time does it work half the time like what what is what does the research say about this this eccentric program yeah so if you look at the short-term outcomes for eccentrics it definitely is effective for people with achilles tendon pain and most people have a reduction in their symptoms however it's not that common that people get a complete reduction in their symptoms so one of the studies that we did was a large review looking at all exercise intervention programs and very few studies achieved an average greater than 90 and with the scale that they use which is the visa a 100 is perfect, zero, so the higher you are, the better you are. Mm. And at the end of the intervention period, very few studies had a average of greater than 90, meaning that most people were still having some level of impairment of function due to their Achilles after a 12 week loading program. Mm. And um, I mean, am I thinking correctly? Like the visa, I kind of think of it like a percentage, like 100% or 100 a score of 100 is like, I'm 100%, my Achilles is fine, I can run as much as I want, I'm, I'm good to go. And then like 60 would be like, I'm 60%, I'm almost half my normal, um, because I'm so restricted from my Achilles. Is that the way to think about that? Um, probably the, a, a very severe group of people with Achilles tendon issues. So someone that has quite significant levels of disability would be sitting at like a 40. Hmm. Okay, so even even below i would say sub 50 is a severe restriction in function and mm-hmm. um, the difficulty sometimes with the visa is depending on the level of the athlete even a very high visa score might be substantially restricted so someone can be getting an 80 on their visa but the difference between an 80 and 100 is the fact that they can't train normally so they right. can have low levels of symptoms just at rest and everything else but they're really struggling to get normal training so even at those high levels if you're someone that does a lot of running if you're someone that wants to you know run marathons and do a fair bit of training even for change of direction team-based sport as well as your individual running sports you want a relatively high score Mm. like 90 plus to mean that you can train normally right okay so if if we are like just for me i always think about runners then as you say they they the research is saying about these eccentrics that a lot of them are ending up after doing a really good program of three months of rehab and they're ending up with these scores below 90 which means that they can't really train the way they want to if they didn't have that injury that they they're still going to be restricted in terms of maybe if they're trying to up it from a half to a full marathon distance or something their Achilles is really going to be stopping them from doing that and stopping them from training normally. And it's, and it's sort of these, these really commonplace rehab programs, they're not quite getting people back to, you know, what we would like to think, you know, if someone, if a runner comes into me with an Achilles problem, I like to think, you know, this is going to be a problem for a while. And then when you're over it, you're going to be able to do what you want and you'll be back to normal, but that's not really what's happening in, in the research trials. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. And you did say that um, this is more so that they've done most of the research on people who've had the problem longer. Um, do we sort of need to separate these people out? You know, so if people are listening and they've had Achilles pain for a few weeks, 
Should they be thinking about it differently from someone who's had it for a few years, for example? Yeah, there's not a lot of evidence for, or not a lot of studies that have split the, the two different groups, but I think clinically, we have some very different presentations that really sort of acute grumbly, uh, sorry, acute flare up type presentation, I think you would definitely treat very differently to how you would treat a more significant flare up. Um, so yeah, someone that's had the problem for, you know, nine months, they're grumbling along, they're able to do some loading, but you know, they're just a grumbly tendon and aren't training at hundred percent. I think is very different to your short-term flares up of someone that's done a huge amount of training in a short period. They've had a big load spike, their pain significantly flared. They've got a high level of disability. You're going to want to treat those groups differently. Mm. And uh, how would they differ? I'm thinking actually, um, I had a young girl come in last week and um, her Achilles, she, she's, I don't know, maybe 17, 18. Her Achilles is like, was killing her. She was limping in and she'd been doing a lot of work um, and she was wearing heels at, at work and she'd started working a lot more recently. And, um, you know, it was really angry. She couldn't do even one calf raise, you know, she couldn't stand on the edge of a step and go up and down. We got her just standing and staying still because that was all she could manage. And uh, mm. this week she came in and she was doing three sets of 15, holding a 15 pound dumbbell and then doing a bit of hopping as well <laughs> within a week, which is all down to my wonderful treatment, obviously. So um, are these short term things, uh, will they just get better on their own? Is that is that what the takeaway there? Or do they need some kind of intervention if it is a short term? Or do we just not know at the minute? I'd say that they don't get better on their own, given that a group of people will go on for long lasting mm. symptoms, some might. And, but I think the biggest issue here is that when they have these flare-ups, a lot of the time, unless they're a high-performing athlete that need to be training at a certain level, what they might start to do is decrease their load. So mm. let's say it's a runner, they run four times a week and they're averaging you know, 60 Ks a week in kilometres, and that's what they do. And then all of a sudden they start to build up to something larger. They get to 80 kilometers a week and then they start to get a little bit of achilles tendon soreness okay i think the most common presentation that you would see in the clinic is the person then backs off the load and they go oh they'll take one or two weeks off and that can be fine for that person and that may help resolve it but the issue is if they go and take one or two weeks off and then get straight back into that 80 kilometers a week even if their Achilles doesn't get sore again, and I'd say most times it will, their risk of other injury because of that fluctuation in their training load is going to be increased. If they decide not to do the 80 kilometres and they go, well, I'm just going to stick to 60, they've decreased the load that they had from before, which is a good idea. They don't want to, you know, if you've had some time off, you don't want to go straight back into where you were, but it might put them off ever trying to build towards that higher load again. And then if in, you know, they take a month off and then they go and try and just go back to 60 and then 60 saw, they might go, you know what, I, I can't do 60 anymore. I'm going to drop off to 40. And I think we see this gradual decline in what people have as function. So their pain might be relatively stable. They might have little flare ups here and there, but overall their load is dropping. And I think that's what we don't track very well within the tenant studies. 
is that we're really focused on pain and we're focused on, you know, asking someone whether they can train normally or train with pain, but we're not really quantifying what that training consists of. Mm. And I think clinically based off the presentations that we would see, people do decrease their load if they get sore because they think that they're just doing too much, which may be based on their physical capacity they are, but we also don't want people to just keep getting intermittent flare-ups and gradually dropping a load because they started with a load capability here and then they end up down here, which is not good for overall physical function. Yeah, and I've certainly seen that with runners over the years that they have dropped from maybe the higher, like the ultras, the trails, the, the marathons, they've had an Achilles issue and then they'll just sort of mention casually, oh yeah, I, I sort of dropped down from that and I do halves now or I only do tens now because I don't want to, um, I don't want to damage my Achilles is usually the wording they use. So, yeah, I mean, is, is that the wrong thing to do? Is that, should they be taking a different approach? Well, it, it really depends on how you define better. I would say that if someone runs 80 kilometers a week and gets Achilles pain, and then the next week they run 60 kilometers a week and don't have Achilles tendon pain, I wouldn't necessarily say that that person is better. I would just say that they're exercising at a sub pain threshold. Mm -hmm. So clinically you might deload them and go, oh, this is improving really nicely, but you're not actually testing them at the loads that aggravated them in the first place. And that's what's really tricky to do within a lot of the research. So I think what we've got to move to is not just asking, you know, is your pain improving, but whereabouts is your pain score, but also what are you doing physically? Because if you haven't tested it with what you did that first aggravated it, sometimes we can be fooling ourselves into thinking we're doing a great treatment, but we're not. Yeah, that's um, aggravating loads. That's really interesting, actually. It's not, I've never really thought of it like that, but you could, um, I mean, for runners, it would be quite, it'd be harder for team sports, but for runners, it, usually most runners these days are tracking with something and you can just mm -hmm. look at their, you know, weekly and monthly kilometers for pre-injury and, you know, their goals for the year. And then you can see, you know, have we got them back to that? And, and what you're saying is that potentially we're kind of fooling ourselves sometimes maybe because they're just dropping down to a sub-symptom level of running and then we're like oh great it doesn't hurt anymore and then um, in the research you're saying that this might come through as a positive outcome whereas actually it's a, it's just an, an adjustment in what they're doing it's not really a full recovery yeah spot on so i think we need to track that a little bit better um especially in the clinic because runners are great like runners some of the best patients that you'll ever have for knowing what their loads are and they'll be able to tell you what the surface was like what the kilometers are what their averages are you know they're they're crazy like that which is really handy from a <laughs> um, physio rehab point of view but i think you do need to be cognizant that if someone is trying to run at higher loads and they drop off that the goal should be to get them back to where they want to be and not mm. just to a pain-free threshold because there's a lot of things we can do as far as interventions to build them back into a higher level of function but i think just dropping loads and assuming that they're better because it was over a certain time or because you did a great loading program or because you did a great massage but if they haven't tested it with what initially flared them in the first place i don't think you can say that you've made a huge improvement because mm. it could just be decrease in the overall load right and then i mean is this 
is this a problem where the tendon, you know, say they're doing 80k a week, the tendon starts to hurt? Is that just their max? You know, is that or or is it just their max then? And could their max go up? You know, as I'm thinking in the in the mind of a runner who goes up to a higher level of mileage and then they get Achilles pain, so they drop down and it's not hurting, like, oh, I'm okay now. But maybe they just think that's what I can do. Is that fair? Is that correct? Or is it likely that if they tried, they could surpass that sort of ceiling that they've found? Yeah, there's this really um, lovely paper by Sean Docking and Jill Cook, which really describes increases in load and this really slow graduated increase in loading leading to overall better function. So I think you definitely can, like I don't think there is a clear ceiling effect for this. Obviously, you're going to get to the point eventually, even if you're world record paced, that you do start to just hit barriers and there is physiological constraints. But from a rehab point of view, if someone's getting an onset of pain with a certain load, I do think for, that for the majority of patients, if we work on their physical function, if we work on their training schedule, if we work on a bunch of different components of what makes up that person's risk for getting pain, that we can sort of modulate how they're going to go with a running task. Hmm. So for the, the classic that I would do in clinic is if I'm seeing a runner that's running every day and they're running 10Ks seven days a week, okay? So 10Ks a session, seven days a week. The first thing I would do if they're getting tendon pain is I would say, listen, if you want to keep a volume of 70Ks, that's, that's not an issue. Let's drop that a tiny bit, but let's give you rest days. So let's mm. program rest days into your program because giving the tendon a you know a 48 hour window to start recovering after a bout of impact exercise is going to be extremely beneficial even if you end up doing a higher load on one of those days so it might be that you do four 15 kilometer days instead of seven 10 kilometer days and even though each individual running session is longer the overall pain pattern for the patient I would expect to improve because you're getting longer rest periods in between the runs. And the other thing we know with most tendon complaints is that they warm up with exercise. So if it's a true tendinopathy of the Achilles, they'll start to feel better as they exercise, they'll feel okay. It'll then get sore afterwards, particularly the next morning. So that's where I think we can change our loading and we can have a really good education effect on any patients of how they break that up because runners do like to traditionally run every day. Sometimes this is easier in triathletes because mm. triathletes will traditionally not run every day so they can flex their program a little bit more. Um, I have found it a little bit harder in the running cohort, but introducing things like cross training days, introducing strength days where they can do their resistance training and some form of cross training so that they're still meeting their sort of physiological adaptation, but they're not loading the Achilles can be really, really helpful. Hmm. Yeah, I've certainly looked, come across the the face of, of hatred when you suggest some sort of cross-trading to a runner. It's, uh, it's as if you've suggested something yeah. truly terrible. Um, but um, why, why is it important to have those days off for tendons specifically? And why would it be even potentially easier for a tendon to tolerate the Achilles tendon to tolerate running the same amount just spread out over four days instead of spread out over seven what what's going on there 
So I'll, I'll butcher this explanation because I'm not a histopathologist, but <laughs> basically what, what happens within the tendon is when you load a tendon um, with the specific load that's gonna cause it to adapt, you're gonna get some form of change within the tendon. Now, if that's a small amount of change, okay, you might get really positive adaptation and it will settle down and heal and you'll end up with a stronger tendon. But that adaptation period takes or they suggest about 48 to 72 hours within the studies that have been done just on the rates of collagen synthesis and other things within the tendon. So we'll try and always suggest a sort of 24 hour to 48 hour rest period in between runs. Some, now some people are freaks and they can just run every single day and they'll never get a tendon injury for whatever reason. Mm. But when people are presenting with these issues, it is very helpful to break up their scheduling, even if it means that they do more in the single day. And that's not just for tendon, that's very similar principles for bone. Right, okay. Um, so chin splints, uh, uh, stress fractures, things like that, it may be helpful to, to have, try and get to the same volume or weekly volume, but spread it out over more runs uh, in a similar way as with Achilles tendons. Yeah, again, if someone's never had an injury and they're tolerating those volumes and mm. running six days a week, I, I wouldn't mess with that. If, they, if they're going fine, leave it. But if they do start to get flare-ups and they're starting to get signs of bone stress or they're starting to get signs of tendon irritation, then one of the easiest things that you can often do is just add in a rest day. And the other thing with this, I feel people go a little bit crazy when they're looking at deloading an athlete. They'll tell them to have a whole week off or they'll tell them to, you know, go every, only run every second or every third day. Whereas if they've got low levels of pain and it's just onset, you could actually just look at taking out one of those sessions. So if you've got the, like I said before, the athlete running seven days a week for 10 Ks, you might just go, well, let's give you a rest day on a Sunday and split those, that 10 kilometers into a Tuesday and a Thursday. So that you're doing 15 Ks on a Tuesday, Thursday, your overall running volumes are the same, but you are having a full rest day. Mm -hmm. and see how that goes and then they can monitor their symptoms at a similar amount of load and then they can keep a pain diary because i do find that with this group pain diaries are very very informative and runners are great because they're really diligent with this and you want to find some form of aggravating task and for achilles usually it's a single leg hop and then it's just, you know, when you get up of the morning, try and keep the time similar every morning. Do a single leg hop, do a series of single leg hops, do five. Okay. And then let me know what that pain is out of 10. Is it a zero? Is it a 10? Is it somewhere in the middle? And then if you're changing their loading schedule and that's starting to go down, you're very happy. So if they start initially getting fours out of 10 of a morning, and then they start to get threes out of 10 and twos out of 10. It may take a couple of weeks, but you're really happy because they're maintaining their load and they're getting an improvement in symptoms. Mm. Alternatively, what you might do with those rest days is you might say, okay, if you wake up with a four out of 10 Achilles pain on those single leg hops, and then you go for a big run and you've had a big day on your feet and the next day you wake up as a seven out of 10 Achilles pain, you might decide to not run again until it drops down to a four, which might be the day after. Mm -hmm. So they can use a pain diary to really listen to their symptoms and figure out whether or not it's a good idea for them to reload that tissue. 
because again, the hard thing with the Achilles and why I think sometimes people get into a bit of strife is that it's getting gradually sore, but because they warm up with exercise, they can still get through their function. So they're mm-hmm. still gonna hit it with exercise and just pay for it at other times during the day. And by the time it starts to impact on their exercise, it's already you know one or two months into this aggravated structure. Yeah, I, I can see what you're getting at there. And I've tried this um, before with the, you know, I call it like a like a litmus test, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah. hop five times. Um, and then I stopped and I had, um, do you know Mike Stewart? Um, he, he talks about pain research and that kind of stuff. So I had him on the podcast yeah. a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about this. Um, and he was saying, you know, if we're if we're doing things like this, that we might be bringing too much attention and, and, and concentration uh, to a problem and actually end up making the problem inadvertently worse. And I know that I tried to read one of your papers, I think it was on conditioned pain modulation. I, was, I couldn't understand a word of it. It just went like <laughs> way over my head. So I know that you're interested in sort of um, the difference between pain and, 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 and maybe changes in tissue. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are there. Is that a risk if we're taking that kind of approach? Um, can we pay too much attention to these things? And, and if so, how might we get around it? Yeah, so I think that, that is a completely valid point, but it depends how you sell it to the patient. So if you're telling someone that, you know, we're really worried that you're damaging your tendon and we want you to monitor pain because we want to know how much damage is going on in your tendon, mm. that's a disaster. Right. So <laughs> like, definitely don't do that. But what, what I say to my patients is that there's actually evidence that suggests that your painful Achilles is less likely to rupture than your non-painful Achilles. So, I, you know, I don't get it though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, the risk of rupture appears to be lower on the painful side. And I'll tell that to people because I do find that patients are worried about Achilles mm. tendon rupture. And then I'll say to them, one the thing is, it's just getting irritated. You're loading it and it's getting sensitive. It's getting sore a bit like a bruise. And what we want to do is we want to either improve your function and keep a stable pain level, or we want your pain to improve and keep a stable functional level. Mm -hmm. What we don't want is pain to go up or to function to go down too much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So we can obviously decrease function if we need to stop the pain from going up. And I, I find that's a really valuable tool. The other thing is it gives a very nice insight into what patients are doing that flare them up. Mm-hmm. So they'll come in initially on the initial consult and you'll fire 30 questions at them about you know the running or this, that, and the other. And what they might come back with is and after a week of tracking, they go, you know what, the day that I really get sore is after I run hills. It's my hill running day that really flares me up. Mm. And they know that because they've had some form of monitoring into their symptoms. And you might go, well, what we're gonna change this week is we're gonna remove your heel running and just gonna run on flats. So it's all these little cues that you can get from the patient, which I find they get a little bit more awareness of because of the the pain diary, but it's all just about why you're monitoring the pain. And for this, you're monitoring the pain level so that they can keep doing function. And that's Mm -hmm. why I'm comfortable doing this. If it was, if it was, you know, you're just monitoring pain for the sake of pain, but if you're going, you know, if your pain's stable and you're running 70 Ks a week, that's fine. If you're happy with your pain at a four out of 10 every morning and you can run 70 Ks a week and the pain's not getting worse and we're going to rehab you on top of that, 
I'm actually happy with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the patient that's getting gradually increasing pain because they're training, we actually do need to back them off. So if someone is doing so much loading that it is exacerbating their symptoms, we need to deload them. And that's where this gets a little bit complicated as opposed to say the back pain world, where you're just trying to encourage physical activity in people with chronic pain. We're in a, a cohort of people that are typically physically active and we're trying to keep them as physically active as possible while managing their symptoms. And so I guess we kind of skipped over this a little bit. I don't know you said that your research interest is more, um, it seems to be more practical, right? Like the, the how do we fix this problem? But um, I mean, if we could just try and make some sense so people are kind of be listening and thinking, yeah, but why does my Achilles hurt anyway? You know, what, what, how would you, how do you explain when you get a runner in and their Achilles hurt and what, what, how do you explain that to them? Yeah, so I try not to explain the basics of pain too much to patients in the Achilles because we don't actually have a great understanding of what causes pain within the tendon. Um, I tend to talk more about the structure being sensitized or the structure being irritated or flared Mm. up. So I'll say, you know, you've overloaded it. It hasn't liked what you've done. And as a result, it's gotten really irritated. And there's a bunch of different reasons as to why that irritation can happen. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter. What we want to do is just decrease the irritation. And the way we're going to do that is by X, Y, and Z. Um, I will tell them that it's not a inflammatory condition. There is some evidence for low levels of inflammation within tendinopathy, but it's definitely not a condition that you're going to treat with the traditional anti-inflammatory approach. So this is never the cohort that are just going to smash anti-inflammatories and get better. So I think it's really unhelpful to go too deep into the inflammatory versus no inflammatory debate of tendons. I'll just say, you know, it's not a predominantly inflammatory condition. Therefore, things like anti-inflammatories, while they may be useful a little bit for pain and to calm down some symptoms, they're not going to fix you. What we need to do is increase the physical capacity in and around the structure so that it can tolerate the loads that you want to do. And that's the way that I would approach it. I would Mm -hmm. just talk about the tendon being sensitized, the tendon being really irritated, And then what we're going to do from a management point of view is decrease the things that irritate it so it starts to feel better. We're also going to build it up so that it's more resistant to getting irritated in the future. And if they, because a lot, uh, I had a a guy come in this week just uh, with an ultrasound scan um, because he'd been having some tendon pain. He'd gone to the doctor and it said that he had some, um, I think the wording was uh, tendinopathic changes. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that must come up in your consultations, how do you discuss that um, and, and what what relevance that has in, in terms of, uh, is it different if they have a, a scan that shows these changes or do we, do we approach this in the same way? Yeah, so I think you always have to discuss the scan. So if people have had the scan, you need to talk about it um, because for a lot of patients, I feel like the scans, their validation of why they have pain, they feel like their pain is justified because they've got these changes on imaging. Um, but we try and always frame that in a really positive light for the Achilles and the patella tendon is the same, is that the thickening and the changes that you see are an adaptation to loading and not everyone that has them has pain. So if you do more running, you would actually expect to see changes within the structure of the Achilles tendon. Mm -hmm. And that's not causing pain. That's actually an adaptation of the tendon to the increase of load and the increased demands you're putting upon it. 
And there is some research that shows that changes are more apparent based on the years that someone's been running. So we do, we definitely expect to see that. Um, and I'll, I'll say that to a patient, you know, mm. that's, that's actually a good thing. It means your tendon is adapting. And one of the good things out of the work of Sean Docking and Co is that when you actually quantify within that tendon, the good structure, so the aligned fibrillar structure, that's what we use for load transfer. So what the Achilles is really important for versus the other structure that isn't important if you compare a healthy non-thickened Achilles versus someone with tendinopathic change, the actual quantities of good aligned fibrillar structure are exactly the same. That's, so, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's something that can be reassuring for patients because they, oh. they look at the scan and go, oh, I've got this big, grotty, foul-looking tendon and you know <laughs> I've had it explained to me and it's going to rupture whereas you can actually reassure patients that that's a physiological response based on the fact that you're running or loading and that the amount of good tendon structure within your tendon even though it's got that tendinopathic change is going to be comparable to someone that hasn't had tendinopathy so you don't have to freak out much about the scan right and you, the, the other thing we know is that over a course of, so there was a study that tracked people over a couple of years and looked at tendon structure. And even though patients improved, so their symptoms got substantially better, there was no changes in their tendon structure. So mm -hmm. the symptoms will improve and change completely separately to what the tendon structure is doing. So we don't tend to worry about it too much. Yeah, it's not going to dictate whether you have a successful return to full running and training what your scan says uh, regardless of what it says it's really about what you can actually do or as you said the capacity of your tendon to do stuff is really what you're focused on um i think i might i might just reiterate because that was really interesting i didn't know that but what you're saying is uh sometimes when people have an achilles tendon problem the achilles gets a bit fatter right and then if you have a, a scan and it shows some changes in the tendon, what you're saying is that the fatter tendon has actually fattened up, but the useful sort of uh, collagen strings or cords that are doing the job of, of pulling the heel bone are quite comparable to someone with a quote-unquote healthy tendon. Is that right? Yeah, so the the, the I'm going to use the, the same description that um, Jill and Sean and Ebony and herds use is they say treat the donut not the hole mm -hmm. so in the patella tendon when you do these scans the if you think of the tendon like a just like a circle the donut component of the circle is the good healthy aligned tissue and the hole in the middle is the poor non-aligned tissue that isn't weight bearing so it's no longer a stretchy elastic tendon and the concept is treat the donut not the hole because the size of the donut is exactly the same in someone that's had has significant pathology and someone that doesn't on the imaging. But the stuff that's not weight bearing, we don't really worry about anymore. We're more mm. focused on good quality tissue and wanting to enhance the function of the good quality tissue as opposed to worrying about the tissue that's essentially become redundant. Right. Okay. So you, you take what you have and make that stronger and you don't worry about anything that you might have lost. Spot on, especially because the overall quantity of the good 
structured tendon is the same as someone else that's got a healthy non-pathological tendon. Mm, I'm definitely going to make sure I talk about that with people because I, I can see that being very helpful for people to, to think, oh, actually, I've got enough good tendon left there. I just have to make it stronger because I want to do 80k a week, not 50. But if we can circle back here, you know, you talked about um, the research on these eccentric loading programs. And, um, you know, that's that's sort of typical, um, uh, let's say, physiotherapy practice for people who come in with Achilles pain is you get these eccentric loading programs. And you're saying they're not quite getting these, um, you know, full, full recovery type things. And um, is there a better way? um to do it i mean you've been talking a lot about um managing their training load right so splitting it up over multiple days and uh, um, a few days a week instead of every day um draw, drawing back temporarily and then building back up very slowly over time but then still having that goal of getting back to whatever you were doing before or whatever you want to do not sort of just long-term chopping down to a, a lower level of training um, is this is this the path? Is that, do we need to do the exercises differently? Um, do the are the exercises needed? You know what what does what does the research say about this kind of stuff? Yeah, so there's no studies to date that have shown that any specific programs are superior to the eccentrics program that was initially proposed. But that being said, a lot of the protocols don't really mirror what would happen if you went and saw a, a strength and conditioning coach. So if you went and saw a strength and conditioning coach and said, listen, I want to increase the strength of my calves, I want to you know, increase my plantar flexor power at the ankle, whatever it might be, you'd be very hard pressed, I think, to find a coach that's going to prescribe you 180 heel <laughs> drops a day. Um, you might look for another is, coach. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it'd be really unusual. So if we think that strength has something to do with modulating the load of the Achilles or is a, a decrease in strength is a risk factor for why these people get sore, then we want to try and target the programs at what's most likely to give us improvements in strength. And we can do that in a couple of different ways. So you can do that with heavy, slow resistance training. Now, heavy, slow resistance training has been studied in the Achilles and did have good results comparable results to the eccentrics but the protocol that was used in this study was a double leg program so they didn't use single leg training whereas in the clinic traditionally what we do i think for most physios is that we target single leg training for someone that has a single leg pathology we wouldn't you know if someone's coming in for an acl their mainstay of knee strengthening isn't double leg press mm. you'd hopefully get them doing single leg press so I think doing some single leg training is really important, especially when the strength deficits are greater on the painful side than the non-painful side or less painful side. So single leg training is the key. Some really heavy weights really build up the capacity because the thing with tendons is that it's all about the speed of the movement. And that's why things like running and jumping are really aggravating for the tendon because the tendon's quickly having to store and then release energy because of the speed that the ankle's moving in. Whereas if you look at really slow weights contraction, so something like a really slow seated calf raise, for example, the aggravation through the tendon is extremely low because the movement's extremely slow. So if you go to a really slow 
and I'm talking really slow. So, you know, four to five seconds of time under tension. So a couple of seconds for your concentric, a few seconds for your eccentric phase of your, your heel raise. The tendon load is quite low, but you're really hitting the muscle pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And then you would do that with as heavy as load as possible in different positions. They're going to target predominantly the gastroc and then positions they're going to target predominantly the soleus, which what most people would do is a calf raise or ankle plantar flexion movement in knee extension and then an ankle plantar flexion movement in about 90 degrees of knee flexion just to try and hit the two different muscle groups. But then you can also work on their overall calf endurance. So just a body weight calf raise with technique so that they're predominantly loading the calf and not hinging off their lateral sort of compartment group and then working on getting as many endurance calf raises out just to try and improve the capacity through the tendon, but taking them again, nice and slow, because the slower you go, the less likely you are to aggravate any um, problem at the Achilles. And that's one of the things we use to sort of diagnose these groups is that if you have a patient coming in, you're expecting to see an increase in pain with an increase of tendon load. So if you do a double leg calf raise, they might not have a lot of pain with a double leg calf raise because the load through the tendon is pretty low. If you go to a single leg calf raise, that might be a little bit sore because there is some load going through the tendon. But then when you move to things like double leg jumping, so you know, just hopping with both legs versus hopping with the left leg versus the right leg or affected side, you'd really expect to see an increase in pain. Your single leg hop should be much more painful than your single leg calf raise. And if that's not the case, you're automatically thinking that maybe this isn't a tendinopathy and that there's Mm -hmm. something else going on. But the little clinical tip with the single leg hopping is to make sure that their heel doesn't hit the floor. So often as clinicians, we can get tricked because if someone's hopping, but they're hitting their heel on the floor and having a decent rest in between efforts, they're actually not using energy storage and release because they're not springing off the tendon. Mm -hmm. They're really just using the heel to hit the ground and slow them down. So making sure that when you hop, yeah. So when you're hopping, it's a series of consecutive hops where the heel doesn't touch the ground and comparing the aggravation of the tendon with that versus your single leg calf raise, which is a nice slow movement. And you'd expect to see, like I said, that the hopping is sore. But when you're applying that to the rehab, the opposite is true. You're going to want to smash them early with those slow exercises. They're going to be sub pain or low pain threshold. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to gradually increase over time into the more aggravating tasks as their capacity within the tissue is improved. Mm -hmm. Okay. I might just, um, just try and paint a little picture. So the runner's got an Achilles tendon pain and they're, they're engaged in a rehab program and something they might expect if it's a really good rehab program is they're going to be doing calf raises, um, certainly initially, and they're going to be very heavy and they're going to be very slow. So taking five or six seconds to even do one rep. So to do like 10 or 11 reps takes a long time. And then they'll not just be doing it with the leg straight, but also with the leg bent. So maybe um, there's an exercise machine called a seated calf raise. Is that what you would suggest for that where the knee is bent and you sort of you're pushing up onto your toes and the knee pushes the weight up a little bit. And again, going very slow and very heavy on those two. Yep. And the, the other machine that we find quite useful for this, um, I don't know if it's got a universal name, but it's just the Smith's rack or the Smith's machine. Mm -hmm. 
So the barbell that's fixed inside the tracks can be really good because you can load up your single leg calf raises relatively heavy for that slow movement, but you can also do your seated calf raise in the Smith's rack if you don't have access to a seated calf. So they're quite useful. You can use things like dumbbells and kettlebells to weight down the knee, but I've found with patients that you tend to just get much better sort of burn and feeling within the calf using either the Smith's machine or the seated calf as opposed to the, the dumbbell. Yeah, and I'll um, I'll embed in the show notes for anyone listening who doesn't know what exercises we're referring to. I'll just put some videos in there of the different exercises so people can understand what we're talking about. Um, and I think, yeah, the, my experience with the seated calf first, so when we're trying to do the leg bent version, um, I only came across that Smith machine variation recently. I, I really like it because a lot mm -hmm. of places have Smith machines and don't have seated coffers. So and yeah, it works just as well in my experience, actually. Um, but when you try and use like dumbbells or plates, you need so much weight. I mean, especially for runners. I mean, maybe if you have, you know, a very an elderly, inactive person who's who hasn't lifted weights in a long time. But if you've got a runner, they're going to have like three or four plates on their knee before they start to feel the burn. And it's like just difficult to handle them when you're trying to do a seated calf raise in that way. Yeah, it becomes really, really difficult. And especially if you're in the seated calf raise putting on 40 and 50 kilos versus you're in the trying to do that with plates or a dumbbell, like good luck lifting those dumbbells and those plates on. So yeah, I do find yeah, just if you can use one of the machines. <laughs> yeah yeah if you can use one of the machines it's so much more tolerable and so much simpler for the patient and so i mean you said we're going really heavy like how heavy are we talking about here and how many reps and sets and you know is this something that we need to do you know like you said with the running do we need to have a rest day in between to give the tendon that chance to adapt like how do you structure your programs i know it's going to be different for depending on the person but just to give people a vague idea what what something typical might look like yeah, so there's a really nice paper by Ebony Rio and co looking at sort of the rate to load for tendons. They did a review of the different literature and um, have coined the term neuroplastic training. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, it's really low level of reps. So you're only looking at about six repetitions of extremely slow movements with time under tension. Um, and you'd pick a weight that would fit that. Now on the first consult, you're very rarely ever gonna get the correct weight. So you might have to play around with it and you know, set one might be too heavy and then you drop it down for set two or something like that. So you can play around with it, but um, you want it to be relatively heavy for that slow movement. Now for your endurance work where you're doing, you know, single leg calf raises with good form, you might just be looking for absolute failure. So you might be just trying to get as many out as possible within a set and doing a couple of those forms of endurance exercises as well. And that's how I would tend to tailor what I would prescribe. If provided they've settled to the point that they can tolerate doing some exercises without being sore, I would go within their program, I would do their heavy slow resistance training. So the heavy strength work and then I'd finish them off with a set of, or one or two sets of endurance calf raises to failure. Mm -hmm. The thing with the endurance calf raise to failure, because they're already gonna be quite pre-fatigued from the strength work, they won't get out too many reps compared to what they would do otherwise, but they're still challenging the system. And you can play around with when, when they do that, but it, 
from my point of view, it has to be after a run. So the mm. last thing you want to do is do your gym and then go for a run because your calves will be absolutely cooked. Your calves mm -hmm. will have nothing on the run and then, you know, that modulatory or protective buffer that you've got in your calf strength has gone because they're so fatigued. So I would tend to do the, the functional task first, which is aggravating, which is the run, and then do either the strengthening that evening or the following morning or something like that. Then have your rest period of the day and then run the day following that. Mm, yeah, and that's um, that's not something I've typically done, but I think I'll make a point of now is I put the run, do your run, then do your, your strength work to condition your tendon, and then you have your 48 hours rest, and then you hit it again. So that's kind of, I'm going to apply a heavy, stim I'm going to apply my running stimulus, which is what I want to be able to do, and then I'm going to apply my heavy training load stimulus, then I'm going to have my time of adaptation before I then hit it again. And I think I certainly haven't structured it as, as, as specifically as that, but I think that would be helpful for people. And then they kind of know why they're doing what as well. Yeah. The, the other thing is you, like, I usually just get out, like a, I've just got pre-printed like calendars of Mondays to Sundays. And then I sort of just go, well, let me know what you're doing in the week because the right. hardest thing, unless they're an elite athlete where they've got, time to do whatever they want to is people are working people have other commitments they've got to pick kids up from school they've got to you know work on this day their whatever it might be that unfortunately sometimes the ideal scheduling just doesn't happen mm. and you do need to work around that but as close as you can get it to that sort of principle in my clinical practice I find quite helpful and is that sort of three days a week is this the is that your typical um amount for people um it depends how much they're running to start with i think most of the runners that i would see would run probably five times a week so if i'm going to drop them off i'd usually drop them off just one session a week to mm -hmm. start with so they might be running four times a week um, or every second day which will be seven over the course of the fortnight and then i will add their loading into that depends if they've got access to a gym if they don't have access to a gym those things are always considerations but i will try and encourage people to if they don't join a gym because the strengthening adaptations that they can get by using some of the equipment are really really useful and then i will try and throw that in a few times a week yeah mm. so now we've got um you know they're doing the the calf raises they're doing the seated calf raises they're doing some endurance calf raises without weight where they're going until they can't do any more and then you were saying that you would bring in some like hopping, um, bouncing type stuff. Uh, wh when do you bring that in and how would that uh, look? How, how, many, uh, how many reps and sets and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so one of the things that I would do before I get someone hopping is I'd make sure that they can actually tolerate isometric holes in their sort of mid to upper range position. Um, because what I don't want is as soon as they start going into hopping is to start slamming that heel down on the floor. I want them to be able to maintain that calf activation without it letting go and losing the heel. Mm -hmm. So what I would do initially is I might get them to start doing some stair climbing. So up on the tippy toes, up and down stairs, things like farmer's carries with kettlebells or dumbbells, but on tippy toes, just to make oh, sure okay. that they can maintain a really nice high range isometric calf position which is what they'll traditionally do if they're more of a, a sprinter as opposed to enduro runners 
but um, yeah, getting them up on the forefoot to really get some isometric calf burn while they're mm. moving around. And provided they can do that, I would then start some basic running drills. And the running drills will be different for different people. It will depend on the coach. So if the coach has got a lot of um, preferences on what running drills they want to do, I'll just incorporate that in. I'm pretty flexible, but I do find that that is useful um, for drilling technique and then they can start to build up into what they need to do. The thing to be conscious of a little bit, if someone's a jogger and they just jog at really slow speeds for higher volumes, hopping can sometimes be more aggravating than jogging. So mm. if you're getting someone into sprinting or hard, fast-paced sports, then I think moving through a progression of hopping is really, really important. But what you might do clinically, especially because in clinic you don't get the same access that you do in the elite world, you might actually just start to build up their loads just by increasing their running once they can get to good calf right. control. You might yep. not play around too much with a huge amount of hopping, especially if they are an endurance runner. The thing to consider there is that they're obviously not going to run on their forefoot for the entirety of mm -hmm. the of the um, runs that they're doing. So every case is different and you'll need to prioritize whether or not you think that you need to do a huge amount of hopping or whether or not you are actually just gonna start to build up loads with their jogging, mm -hmm. because that is where it starts to get tricky because the patients are feeling better. They've got this increased capacity. They're feeling stronger. They wanna start to increase their loads. Um, and you, yeah, you just have to be a little bit conscious of why you're giving them the certain exercises and are you just following a recipe and you're getting them to hop for the sake of hopping mm. or do they actually need to be able to control specific running drills and specific sort of sprint related hop tasks before they can get back to jogging right so and then that sort of layers on top of the the, the heavy strength training that you've been having them do and then then those kind of drills come in as they can be tolerated. So if they're very sore at first and it hurts to do it, then we're not doing it then. But as they get uh, more um, capacity, they'll be able to start including a little bit of those and then a little bit more as they get more uh, capacity. Is that is that right? Yep, correct. Okay. And it's almost like there's a sliding scale. Is there's no there's no end point of you know you finish just phase one and then all mm. of a sudden phase one is gone it's more that you'll start to have you know this is doing this and then when you get to here something else might start to be increased and then you'll add something in and you've got this continual progression of at some stage you're going to start adding in different tasks but that doesn't mean that you stop everything that you were doing mm -hmm. okay um uh, unfortunately i have a ton more questions specifically about how to structure the <laughs> the programming um, but I can see the timer. We're, ju we're just running short on time there. So I will let you go there because I don't want to interrupt your um, next um, next uh, appointment. So um, is there yeah. any way you would like to uh, direct people to if they wanted to um, hear more from you or anything you would like to point people to? Um, so I'm on Twitter. So it's Miles underscore physio um, out on Twitter. So yeah, obviously, if you've got any questions or anything, you can direct them there. But otherwise, there's some really great online resources for tendons. So the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Med Research Centre have some fantastic resources, podcasts, infographics, um, things like that, that can be um, interesting if people specifically want to just know about some specific component of the tendon, they tend to be quite focused. 
um, they're a good resource, especially because a lot of the content is free. So you're not having to get access to journal articles and stuff, which mm. I know can be tricky for some people. Um, but yeah, I think that would probably be the, the best way to get some of those resources. Otherwise, yeah, just flick me a message or something on Twitter and I'm happy to answer questions if people want more info. Cool. That's, uh, that's awesome. I will put links to those things in the descriptions to the episode so that people can find you and that people can find the Latrobe um, Sport and Exercise Medicine Center in there. Um, yeah, I'll see if they have anything specifically on the Achilles and I'll, I'll link to that directly. Um, so thank you very much for your time, Miles. I will be pestering you to come back on next time I read a new paper that you have published. So um, I, I, I think I've read three or four from you in recent months and I've found them really informative. So um, thank you and keep up the good work. No worries. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, take care, mate. I'll uh, talk to you again soon. No worries. See you later. Enjoy your day. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. If you'd like your questions featured on the show, just email me, mboydphysio at gmail.com. And if you have a moment to leave a review on whatever podcast I'd be listening to this on, it would be a huge help. See you next week.